You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about Citizens, please visit citizensbhm.com. Jesus has had a bunch of dinners. And you're reading Luke, the man is always going to a meal, leaving a meal, heading to the next one, getting invited. And he's had two notable meals with Pharisees already. He had one in Luke 7, another in Luke 11, and both ended pretty poorly for the Pharisees. It kind of devolves into a denouncement of the Pharisees by the end of the meal, and the meals just don't go that well. But this dinner is different. It's a kind of a quiet sort of dinner. The Pharisees are watching Jesus closely like normal, but they end up actually listening. It's the Sabbath again. A man bursts in, someone who's not invited to the party, bursts in and he has dropsy. That's an extreme swelling of the body with fluids. It's extremely painful. And Jesus heals him and notably says, you know it's the Sabbath, right guys? Jesus isn't ducking any of the smoke. He is ready for their argument that they've brought up in Luke 4 and Luke 6 and Luke 13. They always have a problem with him healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I'm going to heal this man. What do y'all think? And he tells them, you would help an animal in need on the Sabbath. So why do you have a problem with me helping a man? Jesus points out the issue, the thing they've been angry about the whole time has been their lack of compassion, that they refuse to see this man, this woman, whoever's being healed in the desperate need that they are, that they think a lot about their man-made rules, but kind of never see the hurting person as a man or woman made by God who needs healing. And throughout Luke, the Pharisees have just been missing Jesus like this. They miss his teachings. They don't get what he's doing. But tonight, they don't argue. Look at verse 6. And they could not reply to these things. For the first time in the Gospel of Luke, they really stop criticizing Jesus, and they actually listen. They don't devolve into an argument. And there's a small but important lesson for us here that sometimes silence is what is needed from us. We all love to talk and overthink and just swirl around and get bitter and angry and fight. But sometimes being quiet, especially before the Lord, is the way forward. That we must turn down the volume of everything else and all of our expectations and our criticisms to let the volume of the Lord rise. And the Pharisees have always been watching Jesus But now that Jesus has their attention, that they're quiet, Jesus lets them know, I've been watching you too, friends, for years. And I actually got some feedback for you, if you're willing to listen. He gives them three stories that talk about the behavior of the Pharisees, kind of what's wrong in their relationship with God. They haven't asked for God's opinion But what a golden opportunity to have feedback from God himself. And he's going to tell them three stories. They all have a similar point that they miss Jesus for the same reason that we miss Jesus. We miss Jesus because we focus on ourselves. Primarily, we're so concerned about our own honor, our own popularity, our own status with people that we ignore the Lord altogether. And Jesus, notice, he tells them his stories. He doesn't come right out and say that right away. 
And that's how a good story works, how good fiction works, how a good movie works. You know a movie is good, is not just good, but great when the fiction actually gets down inside you and starts to reveal the stuff you didn't even know was there. And that's what these stories are designed to do, to get the truth deep down in the Pharisees that they've missed in all these other encounters. Jesus gave them all sorts of explanations of why he heals on the Sabbath. But finally, he's going to get down inside of why you keep missing it. That what's really the problem? And the story unlocks it. Jesus has noticed how they all scrambled at dinner for the best seats. Imagine walking into a room and everyone, instead of cordially talking or something like we do at the start of Citizens or, or, or at greeting time, everyone scrambled to the very front row. I pray for that day. <laughs> Lord. But in their culture, where you sat had a pecking order. I'm a chicken farmer, an urban chicken farmer, and there is a pecking order. They literally peck each other of who gets to be where in line, who gets to sit on the little bar at night. There is a literal order, and same in their culture. Where you sat, the bench or couch you sat on had a specific order of how relatively important you were to the wider society and the host. So they would scramble for seats to be like, oh, I need to be in third position. I, I sat in six last time and not today, pal. Billy is not sitting ahead of me. I am a bigger deal than Billy. And Jesus noticed them fighting. He noticed them jockeying. He noticed them scrambling. And then he tells a story in verse eight. He says, when you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit down in the place of honor. Don't get right up next to the best man lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by the him, the host. And he who invited you will both, will both will come and say to you, give your place to another person. Because remember, this whole room's filling up. So you can't just bump down two seats. Someone's in that seat. So you would have to get up and walk all the way to the back of this pecking order party. You'd have to go from seat five to say seat 55. And it would be a shameful walk of you trying to be in a higher place. Then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited to a party, to a wedding, to a dinner, go and sit in the lowest place. Don't assume your honor. Don't vie for your honor. Don't fight for your popularity. Don't fight to be over another. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, hey, Fred, you're not in seat 65. Come up here to 16. Friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. And Jesus isn't telling the story to improve their social etiquette. That is not the big point of what he's getting at. But rather, he's talking about why they keep missing Jesus. Namely, that they seek honor for themselves, but it is far better to be humble. When you refuse to live from God's approval, we chase honor in the world. When we don't feel the approval and love of God, we start clawing at every single title at work. We start clawing for every single like or follow on social media. We start saying, I need to be a big deal because inside I feel like nothing. That's why we fight for honor. That's why we want popularity. The person who knows they're approved and loved in Jesus sees no need to fight for their own honor anymore. 
And in fact, when we seek honor for ourselves, it often makes us look silly. It often makes us look even shameful, but for others, as Jesus highlights. And the Lord quotes this maxim that's often used in the Bible. It's said in various ways, but it goes like this. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The world says, brand yourself. And that's wise for an internet-connected economy. But promoting yourself among others, seeking your own honor, can make a real mess of both your spirituality and your friendships, right? No one wants to be with someone who's trying to step over them for honor all the time or one-up them in stories. Every time you try to form an in-crowd, you actually make an out-crowd. Usually social climbing, work climbing, to honor ourselves, we tend to step on people all the way to the top. We get competitive, we get jealous, we gossip at the water cooler, we start telling lies or half-truths to superiors just to let them know, make sure they know that you're the best one. And when we don't get our way, boy, do we rage. Boy, do we envy. But you can humble yourself. You can find contentment in Jesus, deep happiness that God knows you, he loves you, he approves of you because of Jesus, and that if God is with you and for you, then who cares what your ranking is in anything? You can be free from having to be the best if you know you're loved the best in Christ. You simply don't need the world's applause if you have God's smile. If God sees you, that's more than enough, and your hard work will be honored. If it's done for the glory of God, if only God sees your hard work, if only God sees your good character, that's more than enough. That's the one who even knows and cares and really knows. And if he knows, then you're free. But if you go to the world, welcome to the rat race that never, ever ends. You only win one to enter into a bigger one. Jesus turns and he really just extends this point about forgetting the honor of the world. And he tells us instead of pursuing the honor of the world, what if you shot for a greater reward? Verse 12, he said also to the man who invited them. First, he addressed the guests who scrambled over the chairs and looked silly. Imagine all these distinguished religious guys in robes fighting over chairs. Jesus is pointing out what should be obvious, that they look silly. Now he flips it and says, host, you're not off the hook. Host, the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, at your next dinner party, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind. In other words, the least of these. The most forgotten of a culture or community. And you will be blessed because they can't repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Everyone loves those who love them. That doesn't make us special or good Christians to love those who love us. The whole world does that, or at least tries. 
Everyone is tempted to value the rich, to value those who are connected, value those who might return the favor, right? But the way of Jesus is to love those in need, to love those who have little to their name, to love those who have no favors to return to you. And this is where your compassion will run dry for the needy. Some of us have more of a bleeding heart. We're just, man, it always the heartstrings are pulled. They're always tugged, and that's great. Some of us do good things or, or be among the needy people out of sheer guilt. But either way, it won't last very long. Your compassion won't run long if it's motivated by uh, your own personality or by guilt. But instead, Jesus' command to love the needy and promise of reward, they will never run out. His command will never be void, and the rewards will never change. Your love for those who cannot, be, cannot repay you will be paid for God, by God in heaven. So don't try to be popular, church, but rather make room for the poor and needy. Don't try to be popular, but rather make room for the poor and the needy. A few years ago, I was a, a teaching pastor at, at, a, at a pretty large church. And uh, a man named Frank invited me to go to a Bible study, a men's Bible study that he led. And I said, sure. It was just down the street from the church. The church was in a neighborhood that was one of the poorest in all of Kentucky, definitely Louisville, but even all of Kentucky. And so I went to the Bible study. I was excited to go, excited to be with many of these men who served very faithfully at this church. I, I was excited to be with them because I honestly hadn't been in many studies or community groups with these guys. And when I got there, I saw they were very excited to have one of their teaching pastors leading the Bible study today. And they, they kind of had a special chair. It was like a one with padding and, and wheels. And, you know, I was like, oh, that's very kind of you, you know, and I had my, my big, thick leather Bible. I was excited to lead the lesson. I sit down, there we greet, we talk, yada, yada, yada. And I look around the room and probably less than half the room has Bibles. And I said, oh, okay, well, let me go to my car and I'll go get some Bibles. I'll, I'll go get some Bibles. That's an occupational hazard of being a pastor. You have 10,000 Bibles. They're in the car, they're in your office, they're in your home. You just, you need a Bible, hit me up. I probably got one in my pocket now. You know, like I, I always got a spare Bible. And my guy, Frank, goes, hey, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll just read aloud. I'll, I'll read slow. We'll all hang in together. And I said, well, you know, I want everyone to have a Bible. Just let me go get these Bibles. Or, or how about this? Who has a phone? Just get out your phone. It's going to be this passage. You look it up. So guys, kind of a couple of them, you know, have these smartphones, and they're, they're looking it up. And guys and, who have Bibles are, are, are kind of slowly turning there. And, and I said, hey, we'll... we'll We'll jump in, we'll read, and Frank grabs my arm again. I said, hey, Justin, really, I, I will just read it aloud. That's what we do every week. It'll be good. And my heart starts to go, why is Frank being so weird? Is this like a control thing out of Frank? Like, what's going on? And I look across the table and actually notice that all these full-grown men panicking, the glow of their phones is making their face just a fearful moment. 
Many of them don't know where it is in the Bible, of where we're even going. And it dawns on me, Frank reads aloud because this room can't read. And these are full-grown men, ages 20 to 80. Able-bodied, disabled-bodied, veterans, people with some tough stories. Suddenly, my heart falls. I say, hey, let's pray as my eyes just well with tears. We get through the study. It goes well enough. We begin walking out to my car, and I feel about this big as a person. As I realize these men are absolutely hungry for God, don't care about honor, don't care about popularity, don't care even being identified as illiterate, but they are hungry to hear Frank just read the word of God slowly to them over and over and discuss and pray with their friends. And suddenly what's important, this hunger for God starts to overwhelm me. As so much of my life at what is a busy megachurch is spent with very literate people, relatively wealthy people, and often as a staff member handling lots of just complaints. And instead of being bitter against complainers or anything like that, I just hit the conviction, man, I'm, as a privilege of a shepherd, I just want to feed the hungry, man. I want to feed the hungry, and whatever gifts or privileges I have as a literate, educated, gifted man, I want to make sure it's going to the hungriest people I can find and that my soul would be hungry like theirs. And how often is my life consumed with complaining? How much is my life just missing the mark? Jesus tells us to make room for the poor because God will repay you. In the Spanish-speaking word, there's a phrase that beggars often use to say as a thank you to be given a gift. Uh, Dios se lo pega. Pegue? I need a nod from some of my Spanish thank you, Caesar. <laughs> We're trying our best. Dios se lo pegue. It means may God repay you, and it's from this verse. They don't have anything to give back. They don't, have a, they don't have any craft. They don't have anything. They, don't, they can't do anything. They're literally begging. They got something, and they acknowledge that the only way you're getting paid back of this money is if God's watching, and he is. And suddenly, it strikes us that may God repay you, that truthfully, I, I feel repaid usually on the spot when I'm with the poor. Often, you don't have to wait all that long for the benefit to your soul to happen that we were made to be with people, not because I have more and someone has less, but because spiritually we're the same. Did you know every time you meet someone who on the outside and physically in need, every time you're with them, someone who's truly needy, you're meeting someone on the outside that is you on the inside. That spiritually we're all needy if we're in touch with who we are. In fact, that's one reason we avoid the poor that the mirror is a little too telling, that it's a little too real, that deep down we're all in need. But when you meet with someone who's physically in great need, suddenly your own need spiritually becomes real as you realize we're the same. 
And that's why the Lord says, don't value the rich, don't value the popular, don't value the religious esteemed. Invite everybody in town to your life, to your party. And in verse 15, the silent party kind of finally speaks and they agree with Jesus. Listen to what this man says. This is an ancient blessing. Verse 15 says, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus gets his first approval uh, at dinner ever from a Pharisee. He takes this high approval and he decides to push the envelope further. Jesus isn't looking for their approval, but says, I'll play this to my advantage. Perhaps a story or two has opened your heart. Give up your pursuit of honor and status. Make room for the poor. And the final story says, accept the Lord's invitation. Verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent a servant to say to those who've been invited, come, for everything is now ready. And they all alike began to make excuses. First said to him, I bought a field. I must go see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I must go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Now, in the ancient world, remember, pre-clock, pre-internet, pre-electricity, uh, you would send out a messenger if you're going to have a party, a physical messenger. Maybe they wrote something down on a little piece of papyrus, but like they would send out a physical messenger to tell everyone who's coming to the party, probably everyone in town of some status, say, hey, I'm having a party. It's going to be in two Saturdays. And they would get your RSVP kind of like right then, either you're coming to the party or not. Then you would prep the party. And on the day of the party, because, you know, cooking, making it happen, setting up, not clocks, it's just kind of a different pace in the world. You would send back out messengers when like the feast is ready to say, now come. So these are all people who said, yeah, I'm in. But then when the messenger said, and the food's hot, guys, let's, let's get a move on. They all said, ah, maybe not. And they let offer up lame excuses. I mean, the first guy says, I need to see about a field. Who in the world buys a field without seeing it first? especially in the ancient world. How would you even buy the field without seeing it? It's not like there's a realtor listing. You physically had to go buy the field from the guy. It's a lame excuse, but it represents, it's a simple, I'm busy excuse. I don't have time for this feast. The second guy needs to see about five oxen. And it's the same lameness. You don't know these oxen? You haven't seen these oxen? What were you gonna do with these oxen tonight? Were you gonna plow the field through the night? Surely the oxen can wait a single evening to be tended to. But it's the working excuse. I got bills to pay. There's money on the line, money over everything. You, you'll understand. First guy's busy. Second guy, it's money, man. I, this is a financial thing. It's business. The third guy says, I got married, so I, I can't make it. I got a relationship, as if she wouldn't also be invited. And quick marriage advice, um, tough uh, then and now to blame your spouse for things uh, socially. I heavy advise you not to do that unless you want a terrific fight later. Uh, do not blame your spouse for reasons to go to things or not. 
But it's the love excuse. Hey, love's the most important thing. Nothing can get in its way. I, I got to prioritize this over everything. And they seem silly, but they cut a bit, right? I mean, time, money, love, those are the things we bring up in our lack of commitment to follow Jesus, right? Our lack of commitment to serve, our lack of commitment to be a part of a church. Like, ah, I don't really have the time. I'm kind of busy. You know, I'm, I'm working on this business. I, I got these relationships. You know, like, that is the stuff that often gets in the way. Verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done, but there's still room. We got a big old party. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel. Don't just invite. Make sure these people who who don't even get to live in the town, make sure they know I really want you here. Compel them. Go make sure they know to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The master says everyone in town, everyone who's usually left out, the poor, the crippled, the lame, those, those with special needs, the blind, those, those who've been left out of families, those who are in the foster care system, those of whatever it is, I want all of them to come here. I want them all, all the people that the world is too busy for or too in love for or doesn't have time for or is busy making money, all the people forgotten have not been forgotten by this master. All the people who are busy with the world ignored the invite when it came to it. But he says, I want you to go pursue everyone who's usually left out. And I want you to bring them right here. That they have a place at the table of God. And remember, the Pharisees are listening, and wrongly, they would see poor people who are poor. They would say, man, they're poor because of their sins. That was the worldview. They would think a righteous man does what is right, and he will be blessed by God, and he will be good. And if you're poor, must be your fault. Same with all these diseases and disabilities. They'd say, ah, either they sinned or their parents sinned. They're not really allowed at the temple to worship either, by the way. Yeah, those aren't the people you bring bring to a party. Those aren't the people they even want in their house. To be honest, the man with dropsy earlier, probably the Pharisee was offended he would even get to his door. And Jesus is telling them, reversing all this thinking, declaring, these are the people at my table. These are the people of God. These are the people who are responding. These are the people who are actually in touch of their need. Jesus is here for broken people, whether you realize you're broken or not. The master is told there's more room and declares, go to the highways, go to the hedges, go to the spaces outside of town and don't just invite, but compel them. And what he's talking about is you. He's telling these Pharisees that yes, The people who you'd expect to come to the Lord's party are going to say no. The Jewish people, by by and large, will say no to Jesus. And he says, that won't stop the party. I'm going to go to the highway and hedges where the strangers and the foreigners and the outcasts, aka the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, me, I'm going to go get all of them. And they're going to come. 
And for the Pharisees, this is a mind-blowing idea that if Jesus is truly the Savior, he's not just the Savior of the Jews, he is. He's the Savior of the whole world. And if they'd read their Old Testament closely, this has been God's heart all along, but they'd missed it and instead said, these promises are for me and my family and my little club. Jesus says, there is no club. There is no in crowd. There's just Jesus's party where everyone's invited. But sadly, many will come up with excuses. Everyone's invited. But as you read the story, people will excuse themselves out of the party. That's a tough thing to hear. That's a tough thing to know that those who care about their status in this world will likely ignore God's call. Jesus is showing them the very best news, that God isn't inviting us to the party because of what we have. God isn't inviting us to the party because what we can do or what we have done. God isn't inviting us because of our great honor or status in this world. In fact, here is the very gospel of the thing, that God invites us to his house because he desires it to be full. God has invited you to life with God because he wants to be with you. That's what real love is. Love more than words is to be with a person, to belong to God, to be in God's house. He invites you home because he wants you. And that's it. That's the good news of Jesus. It's not, can I clean myself up to get an invite? It's not, can I prove my great worth that I'll be useful in the kingdom? I once heard someone saying like, oh, if only the celebrity could become a Christian, then everyone would believe. I'm like, God doesn't care about any of that. God will use anyone for anything. No one merits into the kingdom and all worldly fame won't matter. Everyone who was super famous 200 years ago, we can't even name. And that's been happening for thousands of years. We are invited to God's table, invited to heaven, invited to the final banquet, invited in the kingdom because Jesus was rejected on the cross for us. The invitation with your name is written in the blood of Jesus Christ for your sins, for my sins, for pursuing honor and approval, chasing after the world like a dog chasing its tail. Those very sins of the Pharisees and us, that's what Jesus died for. It's in blood that your name is written. There's a clear invitation. He's not inviting us because because of what we can do. He dies for our sins that would keep us out of the party and we are invited because of what Jesus has done, who he is, and his great honor in this entire universe. We miss Jesus because we focus on ourselves. We get busy and we don't have the time. We work for money and it never ends. We're seeking love when the most important thing is Jesus. The most important time in the world is time spent with Jesus. The most valuable thing in the world isn't money, it's Jesus. He's the great treasure. The love that we're always looking for is the unconditional love of Jesus. It's citizens, we're happily obsessed with preaching the message and person of Jesus because he's the point. If you're looking for us to find some other great point, you're in the wrong place. It is Jesus that animates all we do. It is Jesus that informs every piece of scripture we read, our craving, our approval, that we want honor and popularity. Guess where it would be most satisfied? It's natural to want honor and approval and popularity. But what would be more satisfying than for God to look you in the eyes and call you his own? 
The honor you want is the honor of knowing Christ. The popularity you want is to be known and to be known by Christ. The thing you need most in the universe is actually free and you're invited. And Jesus is throwing a party for sinners if we acknowledge we're sinners in need. So Jesus is asking you, will you realize your invitation is about me and come to the table? By faith, will you accept Jesus' invitation to repent of sin, drop your excuses, and come to the party? By faith, will you let go of honor and popularity as your goals? By faith, will you open your arms, open your life to the neediest and most marginalized people in our society? How much room can you make for the poor and the needy in your life? That's what trunk or treat in an underserved neighborhood's about. How much room is a big church or small church make a big event to welcome people in, to have some fun, build some community, and meet some people and hear about Jesus ultimately? That's what investing in underserved elementary schools here is about. That's what serving widows and the evicted and the disabled and the special needs, that's what it's about. That's what loving neighbors in a tough neighborhood like this is about. That's what prison ministry, oak tree ministries, that's what all these things are about. That's what being a part of a real church is about, that you're helping other people who are just as needy as you and finding their life in Jesus. Here's the gospel magic. Do you realize every time you serve a needy person, showing you who's inside you. We talked about it earlier, but let that sit with you. Sit with why you resist it, but also sit why that we're all the same, regardless if you have a lot or a little. Jesus's party is a needy people-only party, and good thing we're all needy. Church, live as people who are invited to heaven, your seat is secure. Live as though you have a place at God's table forever. And let that make room in your life now for all the needy, all the poor, everyone just like you.